Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Hi, this is M. David Green, and welcome back to Hack the Process. In this episode, we talk to Pace Smith, a pathfinding coach who helps sensitive spiritual nonconformists live wild, crazy, meaningful lives. We'll find out more about how she bridges the profound with the practical. Pace will tell us what pathfinding means and how the motivation to seek and reconnect regularly with your own path relates to balancing both material and spiritual life practices. She'll also explain how the fun she has writing limericks fits into her routine. I wanted to start this interview by asking you, you've been doing um, work as a pathfinding coach, so I'm curious how you discovered your path. It all started when I gave a presentation about communication and relationships. Um, This was just kind of a spur of the moment thing where attendees of this weekend event were asked to give any kind of presentation on something they know about. And I'm like, well, communication, I I do that a lot. (laughs) And so I just, we've kind of whipped together a presentation on the drive to the event. And when I presented it afterwards, so many of the people in the audience came up later to thank me for the material. And some people even put it into practice like the next day and said, hey, I tried this technique you talked about and it really helped me avoid an argument with my partner. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And just that feeling in my heart of I really helped someone by doing something that came really naturally to me that seemed like no big deal. I was at that moment, I just knew like I needed more of that feeling. I needed to, whatever it took, I needed more of that feeling. And so everything after that, uh, which eventually turned into being a pathfinding coach, is me chasing that feeling. That's amazing. Now, before this, you weren't doing pathfinding. I mean, what were you up to before? What what led you to this? I was nothing at all uh, that was even (laughs) remotely related. Um, I was an artificial intelligence computer programmer. So that's a huge transition, though, to to go from uh, the very technical programming, uh, artificial intelligence type work to, like, hearing a calling from your heart and going off in a different direction. Yes. How did you know? How did you know that that was the time to do this? Uh, just once I felt that feeling in my heart, I knew I just needed more of it, and so I didn't immediately quit my job and drop everything. Um, I started doing uh, presentations on nights and weekends, and did some communication workshops, and just sort of slowly built things up because I was starting from, like you said, absolutely no. I didn't even have a toe in the water of this whole world. See, that's an interesting thing, because I think a lot of people who are, who are listening are going to be interested in, they have a feeling, they want to try something, but of course they have, they have a life, they have existing things that they're doing. Making that transition, I think, is, is, uh, is a tricky thing. What, uh, what steps did you take? I mean, you talked a little bit about conferences, you talked about presentations. How did you structure that? 
small. Um, I think the best thing that I learned sometimes the hard way is to do a tiny version of what I want to do and then scale up to a larger version. Um, so instead of putting together a grand plan for how I was going to put together an in-person retreat for a hundred people, uh, no, I just found a local place where I could host some gatherings and charged a nominal fee and just got people to show up and practiced. And that helped me get a feel for what I was doing. And it got me the feeling that I was looking for. And the fact that I charged a little bit of money instead of giving it away from free helped me dip my toes into the business world of it so that I could eventually end up doing this for a living. I think that charging money thing is, is always a challenge for people. When, oh, did yeah. you start, when did you start charging? Did you start right away? Yep. The, 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 the very first time was volunteer. The second time was, I think, like 20 bucks. So 20 bucks for like a, a, an, a, an evening workshop. It was probably like three hours or so. Like at this, at this point, I'm like, oh, my God, I, like, that's ridiculous. I had no idea how to price things back then. But, um, but back then, it felt incredible. I was getting paid to do something that I loved. Now, how long did it take you to structure that that workshop? I mean, this is uh, this was something that was completely new to you at this point. So you had you'd probably given presentations in the technical fields before. Yeah, it was um, the the actual technicalities of speaking weren't new to me. I had given presentations before, but the material it was basically taking everything that I had learned from my years in being in relationships especially in polyamorous relationships, because, oh my God, you need so much more communication in those. And take just sort of like brain dumping it all into a presentation format. And so the initial version just kind of take, took a couple of days to, to hash out. Um, it took some more time to turn it into like, what was a useful exercise we can share to get people more engaged instead of just a big, long lecture. Um, but once we did the workshop, then people said, oh, you need to write a book on this. And we did. And that was our first book, The Usual Error. That's a fantastic book. I, I, I have the audio version of that. And I love listening to you and to you guys narrate it. There's a funny story about the audio version of that book. We, we made a digital version of it, an MP3. But we also made some audio, like some CD versions. There were six CD sets. Um, and we were just starting out in business, and we didn't understand uh, how things work. And so we printed up a run of 100 of those. And um, guess how many of those physical copies we sold? I'm going to guess it's a rather small number. Zero! It is the smallest <laughs> possible number! We sold absolutely zero of them. They're still sitting in somebody's garage at this point. But like... Uh, that was uh, one, of the, one of the first um, epic failures of business um, where I learned that just because somebody says, oh, hey, I'd really like that thing, doesn't mean they're actually going to buy it when the time comes. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a very important point. I mean, so how do you tell when people are actually going to buy something rather than making something that you have no idea? <laughs> um, I think that's just another case of incrementalism. It's like make a small version first. And with a physical product, it's harder to do that. And that was one of the reasons that I've gone more and more digital. I don't do a lot of in-person events anymore. I don't sell any physical products anymore. Every, all my classes I teach online instead of in person. 
Um, and most of my product, all my products are online instead. I still do love giving in-person workshops and I've, I do it occasionally, um, but you just don't get as much economy of scale because with the internet, you have everyone in the world who can attend. And with a local event, you only have people in geographic range. Right. I suppose you could record those in-person workshops and then resell them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's um, you get way better quality if you just record it in a home studio than if you try to if you try to to please two audiences at once. That makes a lot of sense. Now, how long have you been doing this? When when how long ago was it that you you had this calling from your heart? Yeah, I think that was about uh, wow, eight nine years ago. Wow, has it been that long? Yeah, somewhere around there. And 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 you you uh, you and Kylie were together at that point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and our roles have changed over time, but we've always been working together in some capacity. Yeah. I've been following you two since I think the freak revolution way back when. Oh yeah. That was pretty near the beginning. <laughs> that was, uh, that just the graphics for that really drew me in, but, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I loved the message and the message seems to have been very, it's, it's been very consistent all along, although the, the presentation has changed so many times. That is great to hear because from the other side, from my side, I felt like I was changing my message every year. Um, and so it's good to know that from your point of view, you could pick up on the common theme. No, I definitely, I definitely felt a thread. And if nothing else, uh, the, the energy that you two brought to the different aspects of the business um, also drew, drew listeners along, I think, and, and kept people engaged. I'm curious how you, how you developed that. And is it particularly difficult to have that kind of rapport when you're working with somebody who's also your partner? Uh, it was horrible. <laughs> we, it was, I am, uh, I am not a good person to work for. Um, I, I get very nitpicky in the way that I want things and very unhappy when people don't do things the way that I want them. And so it caused a lot of conflict in our marriage um, when we tried to work together. Um, so yeah, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. Um, you know, additional field research for communication and relationships. <laughs> I, I'm curious about that because I, I know that I know some people who are listening are going to be couplepreneurs as well, uh -huh. uh, in addition to the solopreneurs. And there's there's a whole different set of dynamics that that come up. What what kinds of problems did you did you have to work around, and how did you work around them? Uh, one of the biggest problems is that when we're when we both care, we both want to agree on everything. We, we, I have a vision and Kylie has a vision and they don't always match, but um, it's hard to make any forward progress when all you do is talk about what is like try to reach agreement on things. Um, and so the thing that helped us the most was um, to be really clear on what areas of responsibility I have and what areas of responsibility Kylie has. And then um, just it just gives us the power to just forge ahead and say, all right, I don't need you to, I don't need your approval to do, I don't need Kylie's approval to do marketing. And Kylie doesn't need my approval to uh, you know, like record a video and share it with our audience. Um, and just getting really clear on that uh, really helped us a lot. We really like talking to each other. And so we ended up just saying, oh, well, let's just talk about this some more and try to reach agreement because it's fun. Uh, but it wasn't really actually helping the business. It wasn't really helping people and wasn't making money. So 
You two have a great energy together, and it, it comes through in your podcasts too. I love that. I love like the last podcast you did was just an impromptu conversation, and it was so engaging. Yeah, that's that, that's what uh, the, the, again. That's another thing that uh, we came to over time because we didn't start podcasting until like two years ago. So like the first five years of the business, we weren't podcasting at all. Uh, but people said that we had a, a great chemistry. And whenever we saw people at a live event, people said we had great chemistry. And so eventually we finally got around to start podcasting. Um, but that's the kind of thing where you learn as you go what people really resonate with. And then you do more of that. And often means you have to let go of uh, some other things just to make time. That, that chemistry is one of the things that I think a lot of people um, resonate with. And unfortunately, it doesn't make a great tagline. It's like, how do, you, how do you sell that? How do you say, like, come listen to this podcast. We talk to each other. It's really fun. It's like, <laughs> why? Like, what's the, what's the value proposition? It's more of a, um, a stay for the rather than a come for the. And that's an interesting whole marketing thing we had to figure out. A stay for the rather than a come for the? Yeah, there's a, like, a lot of times there's a, like, come for the foo and stay for the bar. It's like, uh, you know, come for the uh, help finding your path and stay for the witty banter between Pace and Kylie. So how, how, did, how did the two of you finally work out what your routine was and what your, what your own areas of specialization were going to be? Lots of trial and error and lots of communication. Um, the the general rule we try to try to go by is whoever cares the most needs to be the re responsible for it because a lot of the problems we ran into is when i cared the most and i delegated something to kylie but then i would micromanage her because i cared a lot about the outcome and that is difficult you i couldn't really separate business growth from personal growth like in order for my business to do better i had to let go of my perfectionism in order for my business to grow and my audience to grow, I had to face my fear of letting people down because you can't please everyone. And the larger my audience is, the more people I'm gonna let down. <laughs> when you care about the work you do, there is so much, uh, so many triggers that are gonna get triggered in your personality. And so um, it really is a path of growth. And when, when money is involved, it, it, it brings up even more triggers because it's like, oh, no, I have to face my own inner demons in order to, like, put food on the table. <laughs> and so you can't just be like, ah, I'll just do that some other day. No, you need to face it now. And that can be really intense. And it's, um, it's, a kind of, it's kind of a good excuse to not be able to just sweep it under the rug and, and force yourself to, to grow. I can imagine. And, in, and especially when you've got something that's not only trying to put food on the table and also something that's built around your relationship, but also something that is based on a calling from your heart. I mean, it's much easier to make money from something like, oh, I don't know, AI programming that you, know, you, might, you might enjoy, you might appreciate, you might feel strongly about, but it's not like it's your heart calling necessarily. Yeah, there's a, there's a special kind of fear that I call path fear which is the, um, it's like more resistance comes up when you find the thing that is your heart's calling than when you stumble across some random thing that's not that important to you. 
And it's uh, at first, it it seems like it might be a sign that it's like, oh, this is not the right thing because it's too scary. This is my heart saying no. But I, um, what I've learned <clears throat> from both my own experience and from working with my pathfinding clients is that it's actually the fear of of breaking something really precious. It's like this work is a delicate glass sculpture. And if I pick it up, then I might drop it and it might shatter. And it's actually a good sign, not a bad sign, that, that uh, when you encounter that kind of resistance, it actually means you're on the right track. That uh, <laughs> That's really fascinating because it, it's, it kind of implies that things aren't going to get easier once you find your path. They're actually going to get harder because of the significance that you place on it. Things are going to get harder in the physical world, in the logistical world, and in the emotional world. And that is where the spirituality comes in. It's like, I didn't, I didn't bring spirituality into my business just because I was like, oh, hey, I just feel like adding something else new. No, it's like, it's what I found to be absolutely necessary to deal with um, all of these personal and financial and emotional challenges. It's like, um, you know, these problems can't be solved at the same level that they were created. And so you need to zoom out to a, to a broader level, a spiritual level. And that is where I found the, um, the calmness. It's like, oh, things aren't actually worse. They just feel worse when I'm stressing out. And if I uh, connect with my heart and find my spiritual center, then I don't have to get caught up in the, um, you know, in the drama of the day to day, because I know that I'm doing my heart's work. And so that was it. Kind of forced me into it, it backed me into a corner where I had no recourse other than to connect with my heart. So can you tell me a little bit about how you how you came to your spiritual path? I mean, you you have uh, you you've got the heart compass exercise. That uh, in fact, if you could tell us a little bit about that and how you arrived at that. I, for a long time, probably about a decade, I identified as a spiritual nomad or a spiritual nonconformist, where I was interested in lots of different spiritual practice, practices, but I didn't identify with any religion or spiritual path. I was just sort of eclectic. Um, and one of the practices that I came across was a Sufi practice called Remembrance, that involves uh, calling the name of the divine into your heart. And um, I learned from my spiritual mentor, who also was one of my business mentors, Mark Silver of Heart of Business, taught me this practice. And I learned from uh, reading some books by Martha Beck about a, a process that she called the body compass. Um, and I put these two things together, the remembrance and the body compass, to come up with the heart compass. The body compass didn't work for me. And remembrance was great, but I couldn't use it to make decisions. And so this is how I pieced together uh, the heart compass practice, which is calling the name of the divine into your heart and then holding a decision close to your heart and noticing how your heart responds. Your heart will respond differently for a yes or a no. Like you'll, you'll either feel drawn towards something or repelled from it. 
And this is like, um, it, it's, like a, it's like a compass for finding your path. It's the compass of your heart. And this can be used to make decisions in your life that are going to lead you in the right direction and steer you away from the wrong direction. I started using this for myself because I needed to know what to do. And I used it so much and refined it so much that then I started teaching it to my clients when they needed help. And that's basically where the Pathfinding program was born, which is now the, the heart of my business. What I love about the heart compass technique, and what it seems so, so classically pace, is that it has that woo-woo characteristic, and yet it is so practical and so down-to-earth and applicable to reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's my shtick. It's, like, it's bridging the profound and the practical. Like that's, I've, I've got this... I, I spent so many years exercising my brain, and then I started getting in touch with my heart. We need a bridge. Like, spirituality without practicality is all well and good, but the world needs more than just people sitting on yoga mats all the time. And practicality without spirituality is meaningless and doesn't have heart. And so bringing the two together, that's where the magic is, in my opinion. I, I, I imagine that that's worked really well for a lot of your clients. Do you have any client stories that you'd like to share with us about times that what you've taught has, has really made a difference for people that you've seen? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of beautiful ones. Um, one of the stories that comes to mind is there was a one of my clients came to me for help with her freelance writing business. Uh, she wanted to um, to figure out how to turn this budding business into something sustainable. Um, and we worked on that, and we worked on Heart Compass, and she just started encountering more and more resistance. And um, by using Heart Compass. She eventually found out that this is not path fear. This is actually her heart saying, no, this is not right. And we worked together to figure out what was right about it and what wasn't. And um, she abandoned that business. And she's now a science fiction writer. Uh, and so she didn't get what she expected, but she got what she needed. And that is a lot of times um, what happens when you bring the power of the heart into this decision-making process. You know, from a business perspective, it makes it a little difficult to sell people on the pathfinding program because it's like, oh, you're not going to get what you think you want. You're going to get what you need. <laughs> How's that sound? <laughs> so, um, you know, it takes a little bit of chutzpah to do the, uh, you know, for the boldness of that bait and switch technique. Um, but if, if your clients end up satisfied, then it all works out. Absolutely. So how do you balance the business side of all of this with the, with, with, with the, the spiritual side? That's been a part of personal growth for me as well, because I used to believe that business, especially marketing, was really sleazy. And I had to go through a lot of introspection to figure out what my own resistance was. Um, and there is some, there are some business practices and some marketing practices that are in fact really sleazy. And, um, but I kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, oh, all marketing is sleazy. Business is just inherently um, exploitative. But that's not true at all. And when I approach it from a heart 
self-centered perspective, then I'm just helping people overcome their fear enough to say yes. And I'm not misleading people. I'm not manipulating people into doing something that's in their worst interest. Um, but it takes a lot for people to get over the hump of fear or just inertia. Like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I could do this, but maybe, maybe some other time. And so using the heart compass on myself is what gave me the faith and the trust to know that I'm not doing harm in my business. Because whenever I write a sales page, I check in with my heart and make sure that it feels in alignment with what I'm trying to do. Whenever I'm, uh, I have a, a conversation with a, a potential client, before I say, I recommend that you join the pathfinding program, I check in with my heart and make sure that it feels in alignment. And so it's, this is kind of the, um, the moral shortcut. It's like the moral trump card. It's like, oh, well, I could just like agonize over whether this is the right thing to do or not, or I could just trust my heart and trust that everything's going to work out for the highest good. One, one point that I remember you made when, uh, when I was taking your pathfinding, uh, your pathfinding 101 class was the importance of checking with the compass to see not only is it right, but is it right now or is it right now? Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, it's, you know, with the metaphor of pathfinding in an actual landscape, it's like if your compass says go east, then you go east. At some point, you got to check again and say, all right, is it time to make a turn? Um, I think that in my own practice, I was too obsessed with feeling 100% aligned. Like I was not okay with doing something that was, did not cover everything that my heart wanted. And uh, my business suffered because of vagueness. Um, you know, I, the common feedback that I got from people was, um, I love what you do, but I'm not sure exactly what you do. <laughs> it, it, feel, it does feel like, uh, if anything, your business has become much more focused. I mean, you, you've narrowed it down to a very limited set of classes at this point. Yes. And that is, um, that is because I, the business needed focus. It's not like, you know, there, there are still a hundred things that my heart is interested in and a hundred different ways that I could express the, uh, the jewel of my heart into the world. But um, in order for people to actually have a clue what my business is about, which they need to have a clue whether they might want to work with me, um, I've focused on pathfinding. I help you find the calling of your heart. And since that's really the heart of what I do anyway, then um, it's, it's helped. It's definitely helped with the business focus. So what, what is your routine like then? I mean, I, I know you've got... Uh... You've got an audience to keep track of. You've got uh, two podcasts, I believe, that you're running. You've got a number of classes. How do you schedule your time? How do you organize yourself? And how do you keep track of all of that? So I only ever have two projects max at a time. The podcasts and all of the other things that take, um, that are re recurring things to keep the business going 
I have those pretty much on a daily schedule. Monday is generally podcast day, and every day I'll, you know, like check on the blog comments and get on social media and check my email and the little things that help the business go. And then there's the whatever project I'm working on, which is either preparing for a class or teaching a class um, or doing marketing projects. Whatever those are, those happen whenever I'm not busy doing the other stuff. And the uh, and then there are I have an automatic booking system for my coaching clients. So whenever I have an appointment, I just stop what I'm doing and do the appointment and leave a little time around the edges. At this point, I've got most of it automated. So the only things um, that I need to take initiative on instead of just respond are the are the projects, which are usually course related. And those are those are things that you're driving yourself. Those are the things that you've decided you want to work on and that you're pushing forward with. Yes, exactly. The one of the main bottlenecks that I had in my business for years is decision fatigue. Like when you're an entrepreneur, you're a professional decision maker. And um, I, I I found that my decision making power tanks around 3 p.m. And so I need to make all the decisions I'm going to make for the day before three or else I'm done for the day. And so this led me to um, a distinction that I call uh, vanilla versus chocolate, where vanilla tasks are things you can do that you can just turn the crank. It's just like, I don't need to make any decisions. I can just do it. And chocolate are the, the, the richer things where it's like, oh, I need to actually put some thought into this. I need to make a decision. Um, it, may, it might take some creativity. And so um, I have two separate to-do lists, a chocolate to-do list and a vanilla to-do list so that I can schedule the vanilla things for 3 p.m. and later. And so figuring out my own rhythm really helped me be more productive. I, I was so clueless, like, why can't I do this thing? Like, I, could do, I, was having, I was doing it just fine a couple hours ago. What happened to me? And again, that ties right back into bringing the spirituality back in because uh, it allows you to pay attention to your own, to, to yourself. Exactly. So uh, I, th I think people would be interested to know what, what tools do you use to keep track of these things? Do, do you have a checklist tool that you like? Yeah. Um, I use Asana for checklists. Um, I have a private wiki for a knowledge repository. Um, I don't recommend that for non-geeks. It's kind of a pain to set up and use. I use MediaWiki, which is the same thing that Wikipedia uses. I use um, Audacity and Libsyn and Auphonic for podcasting. Auphonic is amazing. It does a great post-processing and noise reduction of podcasts. I don't think I know that one. How do they spell it? A-U-P-H-O-N-I-C. Uh-huh. Yeah, I used to use the Levelator, but Auphonic is better. Um, yeah, so that's what I use for podcasting. Um, and I use a headset mic instead of a regular mic. I'm one of the very few podcasters because um, when I talk, I really want to pace. I live up to my name. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I pace when I podcast. I just walk back and forth the entire time. Uh, if you feel like getting up and pacing, that's fine. I'm, I, we'll see if the microphone keeps up with you. No, it's, it's too short of a cord. I don't have enough room here. Yeah, so... Uh, but I'll be right. But I couldn't. I couldn't podcast for two hours a week 
for the rest of my life without being able to pace. So I got got myself a nice a nice headset mic. So you do webinars as well, don't you? Uh, yeah, I use Instant Teleseminar for webinars, and I used to use Rizuku for teaching my online courses, but it was a little a little bit of overkill for what I needed, uh, and so now I just kind of homebrew it. And I just send out emails and have a web page with the, all the resources on it. I use MailChimp for emailing. I use uh, RhymeZone to write my limericks. Yes, <laughs> that's critical. <laughs> yes, it is. That's one of that's one of the things. It's it's a theme like like podcasting and limericks are great examples of do more of what I love, uh, and focus on doing things that make my job fun. Because if I'm going to do this for, you know, like another 10 years, I need to keep it fun. That's been another large part. It's like find the intersection of what I love and what helps my people. Um, and there's always an intersection. That was actually what I was going to ask you next, because you're taking on a lot and you're doing it on a long-term scale. And how do you, how you, how you stay motivated, how you keep yourself engaged those days when you might feel tired or you know, less, less, uh, less driven to get these things done? I have a uh, folder in my inbox called motivation. And anytime that I, um, that someone sends me a, a thank you email or anything that I think like, this is why I'm doing this work. Um, I put it in my motivation file. I've got 157 in there now, and I'm gonna open up one right now. I am speechless. I cannot explain what your generous offer has meant to me, and I am beyond grateful. This has come at a time when I am so stuck, both physically and metaphorically, and I'm simply unable to explain what your kindness has done for me. It's obvious that you are bodhisattvas, and I cannot thank you enough. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't feel like I deserve quite that level of praise. Wow, bodhisattvas. That's... I know. <laughs> I just picked that one out of the hat, too. I can see how that would be motivating. That was, that was in reply to, um, we did a, um, a pay what you want to sale on one of our products sometime. And somebody reached out to, to thank us for our generosity and kindness. And so when I'm feeling like, oh, Jesus is so hard, I'm tired, I don't want to do this anymore. I pull something out from the motivation file and look through it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm doing this. It takes me back to that feeling of, you know, eight years ago when I was given that presentation that, that set me on this path in the first place. And that feeling is still as fresh as it was eight years ago. It, it, it sounds it. And it's, it's got to be very gratifying to get such positive feedback from your network. And I imagine your network has, has changed a lot since, uh, since eight years ago. Yeah, it has. And that's been another thing that's evolved. You know, uh, you mentioned the, the freak revolution. That was our first attempt at figuring out who our audience was. We're like freaky people. But then we did a survey and asked people what labels they identified with. And only 8% of our audience identified with the label freak. And we're like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> who are these people? Um, and then uh, we figured out that the people who actually were doing the work and were becoming clients were sensitive spiritual nonconformists, like people who are sensitive enough to be interested in listening to their heart. Um, spiritual, because like if you're not interested in spiritual stuff, my approach is not going to work for you. And um, and nonconformists, because like 
if you're happy doing following the the well-trodden path, then you don't need to blaze your own trail. You don't need to become a pathfinder and follow your own heart and go off into the unexplored wilderness. If there's a well-trodden trail, that will work just fine. I've tried different ways of phrasing this, but that that heart of it, um, you know, whether the phrase is sensitive, spiritual, nonconformist, uh, or or pathfinder, or even freak, like that, it still has kind of the same feel to it all along. And um, so there's there has been a common thread of who of what type of person is a is attracted to the work, even though the labels have changed. I think I might have been part of the 8% that identified with the word freak. Right on! Uh, <laughs> uh, you put yourself out there in in ways that I think are, are really motivational and uh, inspiring. And I'm curious um, if you've had role models who helped you find that about yourself, and helped you move forward with that. Let's see. I already mentioned Mark Silver, who was a role model for doing business in a heart-centered, ethical way. That was really, really helpful. Pam Slim was another another example of somebody who was doing business in a really upfront, honest, authentic, ethical way. Um, that was really helpful for me when I was getting started because all of my role models, models were skeezy. <laughs> <laughs> As for like authenticity and putting myself out there, um, Kylie is really my role model in that. Um, she was always at the forefront and I was lagging behind in terms of um, being honest about who she is and allowing that to inspire people and you know, sharing personal stories. And I'm like, this doesn't seem professional. And Kylie's like, ah, fuck professional. And, uh, and it really struck a chord. And I'm like, oh, cool, we can do this. It's absolutely worked. And what about in terms of structuring your business? I mean, there, there's, there's sort of a formula to the kind of media business that you've, that you've put together. Um, is your business structured after other businesses or did you really invent everything as you went along and kind of discover your way? Business model is the wrong place to exercise creativity. When it comes to the actual business model, you want to copy and paste. <laughs> so whom did you copy and paste? I, I copied and pasted from, from Pam Slim and Mark Silver quite a bit. Um, they both teach online classes in similar ways to what I did. I found uh, various sales pages even that I didn't copy and paste from, but I copy and pasted the outline. So I found a really skeezy sales page. Um, I forget, it was called like the $1 million sales page or something. It was <laughs> really slimy. But your heart compass said it was okay. Uh, no, I just copied and pasted the outline. And then I filled in the blanks with what felt right. And I feel like that's a perfect, like a canonical example of how business meets spirituality. It's like there are, there are business techniques that are effective. And it's okay to use those as long as you do them in a heart-centered way. If I had tried to um, recreate the formula of a sales page from scratch using my heart compass, like probably nobody would have signed up for my classes because I didn't understand the psychology of it. Um, but by copying and pasting the outline, the structure that is proven to work, and by uh, then filling it in from my heart, then that 
is a really powerful combination. It kind of generalizes to um, love and power. It's like in our society, we are told that we have to choose one or the other, but not both. You can either have power, in which case you're going to become ruthless and you're going to you know, have to like step on other people to exercise your power. Or you can choose love, which is going to turn you into a doormat, and you're just going to you know, practice your woo-woo things and be sure to harm none ever, uh, and then nobody ever notices you. You don't make an impact. And so another way of looking at my work in the world is that I'm trying to bust that myth that you have to choose either one of love or power, and I'm teaching people how to use power in service of love. I, I think that's a very strong message, and I can imagine a lot of people are looking for exactly that. Right on. So um, it's, uh, I, I think we're, we're just starting 2016, and I'm curious what your plans are for the coming year. The next course that I am getting ready to teach right now is called Peaceful Productivity. Um, and this is another example of like bridging the practical and the profound. Um, so many productivity courses and books and uh, you know workshops are like let's get as much stuff done as you can but that doesn't work for me because i'm too sensitive and so just to get my own shit done i've needed to come up with a way of being productive while still feeling peaceful in my heart and um, i put this together into a course that i call peaceful productivity and it is uh, open for registration right now. And um, you can check it out at pacesmith.com. One, one thing I always like to ask folks is, if you were starting over again from scratch right now, what would you do differently from the way that you, did, uh, you, you built your business up to this point? I think the biggest thing I would do differently is I wouldn't invest a lot of money or effort or time before before something had proven itself. The, uh, for the example of the, uh, the usual error audiobook physical copies, like I, I didn't have a proof of concept before I invested a thousand bucks in something I would sell zero of. Um, another thing I invested a lot in is I invested a lot in a fancy website, and then um, I changed the entire website to be Freak Revolution, several months afterwards. And it's like, oh, geez, like that was wasted, wasted money. Um, and so I think I would be more of a bootstrapper. I would do smaller versions of things and be sure to test before I invest. Oh, hey, it rhymes. Test before you invest. I hear a, lim I hear a limerick on its way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What about in terms of audience building? It's how... How did you build your audience? That was one of the things that I did right. I got lucky. Um, the, the way that I built my audience was by meeting awesome people in person and then um, collaborating with them on joint ventures or um, asking them to help me promote my products and courses and um, various other things. And so I didn't have to go through the back-breaking work of building up an audience person by person. 
just branching out from my social network, I got to get myself in front of all of these people who had way bigger audiences than me and not just in a guest post way, which is great. Guest posts work. Um, but in a more, a, a, a stronger endorsement. Like I got some really great people to be guest speakers at uh, online workshops that I taught. And um, I, you know, I got people to actually recommend my work instead of just say, oh, hey, here's something by Pay Smith. You've never heard of her. Um, and so that, I lucked into doing that first and it works excellently well. It is a little harder to pull off if you're an introvert, but the same general principle of um, making friends with people who are a little further along than you was um, something that I happened to get right the first time and something I highly recommend. I think a lot of people are intimidated by approaching those people who are a little further along or a lot further along than they are. Yeah. And that ties back with what we were talking about earlier, where business growth is personal growth. Like it is, um, it can be intimidating and it is probably going to be the single best thing you can do to help your audience grow. That is an excellent piece of advice. So people can find you online at pacesmith.com. That's me. Fantastic. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>